Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's talk about games for a second. Some teachers are using experience points to track performance instead of letter grades. Playing Tetris has been shown to reduce symptoms of PTSD. If you want to get engaged with movements in the gaming landscape, check out Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. You can subscribe to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Season 2, available now. Welcome to the Podglomerate. I normally enjoy seeing history repeat itself in interesting ways. Uh, This round of it is not fun at all. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. I'm Kyle. And that was Jeff's voice cracking. Was that? I didn't even hear it. 30-year-old man, my friend. Um, I hope that's there. I hope that wasn't just a glitch and that we did capture you in all your post-pubescent glory. Who is on the show this week? Uh, This week on the show, we've got Jen Wright, notable writer and Hufflepuff aficionado. I'm going to just get this out here. Uh, Kyle and Jen and I spoke about different houses in Harry Potter. It becomes relevant as to why at some point in the interview. It was like 14 minutes long. And Kyle wouldn't let me cut it. I apologize for nothing. If any of you care that there's a 14-minute conversation about Harry Potter and Hufflepuff, just smack dab in the middle of this interview. Will you tweet us at WWDW Podcast and let us know? Because, frankly, I don't know why we left this in here. Kyle forced me to do it. I think it's relevant, and also, I don't care. I like it. It stays. But we brought Jen on to talk about her recent book, Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them, which is one of the more terrifying things that I've ever read. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm not a germaphobe, but this might make me one. Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack in that one. Uh, she is also a women's issues journalist at Harper's Bazaar. Uh, she used to cover fashion all over the place, including outlets like the New York Post. Um, she's just generally like a really interesting person to chat with who really does not like the political climate of America today. So I think that comes across a little bit in the interview. Um, who does? Who does? I who does? Not many people. Oh, well, that's a lie. A lot of people really enjoy where we're at today, but definitely not half. Too um, many. <laughs> yeah, way too many. But in any case, you know, we'll, we'll get right to the interview. You can check out Jen's work online. Just Google Jennifer Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Uh, she has uh, author pages all over the internet. Uh, you can find her on social media and you can buy her books wherever books are sold. Let's get to it. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. Today on the show, we have Jennifer Wright. Jen, how are you? Good. How are you? Doing well. I mean, kind of as good as we can be now. <laughs> I feel like if you read the news, nobody is doing well right now. It's so funny that you say that. I, I feel like we talked about you know what was happening in in pop culture and in the news every single episode, and 
you know, 2016 and 2017. But since 2018, people have just kind of been like pretending it doesn't exist. Oh, I, uh, I would love to have a single night where um, I wasn't awake worrying about what was going on in the country right now. So the fact that I ever got to do that seems like a beautiful dream to me at this point. It just keeps getting worse. Every day. Every, every day. day you think, it's worse. You think, you think you've reached the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then the next day is somehow just... Somehow it's... Uh, sometimes it's slightly worse. Turns out... Other times it moves in leaps and bounds. But beneath the bottom, it was just snakes. And now, now we're just in the snake pit. Right, but somehow tomorrow we will find that underneath the snake pit there's a second snake pit with bigger, bigger snakes, snakes who are hungrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, everybody's going to tell you that you should be super excited about the snakes, and they don't. They don't find anything wrong. You have to be civil to the snakes. Yeah. Otherwise, of course they'll eat you. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, they're going to eat you anyways, but you might you, you might as well be polite about it. I know. Um, a thing that I kind of have a terrible fascination with doing right now is reading old newspaper clippings advising oh Jews to be really simple to the Nazis. Because uh, you've got <laughs> to appeal to their better nature. <laughs> I normally enjoy seeing history repeat itself in interesting ways. Uh, this round of it is not fun at all. I feel like... We're living through every terrible historical thing that we've done on like a weekly basis. Like last week, let's try uh, let's try internment camps. Let's yeah. let's do a redo of that. <laughs> See if people like that. This week, maybe we repeal Roe versus Wade. Is that fun? Yeah. It's God. It's uh, <laughs> it's all too terrible and too much. Jen, where are you from? Oh, um, I'm from Chicago, and uh, I live in New York now. And I always find it really fascinating to uh, see how people ended up, you know, uh, geographically where they are today. Uh, well, I grew up in Chicago, and there's kind of a joke in my family that uh, they always knew I was moving to New York when I was five <laughs> years old. My parents came here on vacation, and I really, really loved it. I think they let me chase, like, pigeons in Central Park or something. Anyhow, I connected very strongly with the city. Um, and when they were packing up to leave, I stood at the hotel lobby and I said, well, okay, guys, goodbye. I'll just, I'll stay here. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> um, which is exactly the way I respond now when my parents leave as a 30 year old woman. So, <laughs> And is that why you decided to pursue a career as a writer? Because New York is, is the hub of this and that would allow I mean, you to come is. here? Yes. Uh, that's. Well, it's definitely I always knew I wanted to move to New York, whether I was a writer or not. I think really the reason I became a writer, and I wish there was a better reason, was because everybody told me I was really good at it from a really young age. Uh, I think I was um, a kid who really wanted to have an identity, like I wanted to be the best at something. And from like third grade on, teachers started like putting my writing up on the wall and being like, this is an example of how to write a good story about like what your dog did this weekend. Uh, So maybe there was some inherent talent there, but I think it was more just the fact that that happened one time. And in my eight year old brain, I was like, this feels good. I got to make it happen every time. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was probably a product of the fact that I realized that there was something I could win at and I wanted to win at it constantly because it definitely wasn't sports. It wasn't like anything you would normally get a claim for as a child. I won a photography contest in fifth grade, and now I buy expensive cameras that I, I quite literally don't know how to use. So you you at least pursued uh, you know a career in something that, that you were good at and that you actually put effort into. I mean, look, the important thing is that you know your photographic talent is there. It was determined. You got a it's prize. Innate. You're done. It's innate. <laughs> <laughs> So, and, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you cover, uh, at least in your past, you know, the fashion industry. I did. And I don't anymore. Uh, and but you do write for a fashion publication. No, I do. Um, I write for Harper's Bazaar, but I write about politics and women's issues for Harper's Bazaar mm-hmm. right now because, uh, um, I don't think writing about fashion is uh, frivolous. I think it's a really fascinating multi-billion dollar industry. Um, just take all Stanley Tucci's quotes from The Devil Wears Prada, apply them to me. But I did feel like after the 2016 election, that wasn't where my head was anymore. And honestly, when I see blogs that I get in the news that are still about like, these are great swimsuits for summer i i feel like i'm invariably looking at those after i've read about child internment camps and there's a little part of me that says what the fuck are you doing uh so yeah it would be hard for me to write about fashion right now if only because (laughs) uh i need a place to vent probably every week yeah isn't there there's a isn't there a little bit of protest is it, this is the way that i've tried to rationalize the way that things are still going right now isn't there a little bit of protest in continuing to do the things you love in an environment like this oh i think that's absolutely true i i mean i think we label that self-care now right which is kind of a weird term for like having a bath and going for a walk but uh, yeah i i hope that everybody is doing that i go to the movies a lot um i go to the movies every friday and uh i really really like it it's really nice it's a nice little routine for me um i think there's an onion article about saddest man in the world sitting alone at the movies that i relate to very strongly uh don't really care what's playing it's just it's just kind of fun it's nice Um, so there is, so that you just talked a little bit about your pivot from sort of fashion to politics and women's issues. Uh, but can you talk to us about how you got into journalism in the first place? Like take us back to, to where that started for you. I got incredibly lucky. Um, I came to New York and I came to New York with a truly unfounded sense of confidence about, uh, the job market, especially because it was 2008. So I graduated from college. Uh, The day I graduated, I got in a U-Haul, I drove to New York, um, and I had complete confidence that I would like walk into the Vogue offices and Anna Wintour would hire me immediately. And that did not happen. 
Um, I worked as a waitress in a pirate-themed cocktail bar for about a year. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The man who owned it was very much living his dream, uh, which is nice for him. It's nice that he, he loved pirates, and he thought, like, it would be cool if there was a pirate bar. And you know what? He did it, and good for him. It was not anybody else's dream, because you had to wear an eye patch over one eye as you were serving drinks. And uh, that means you have no depth perception. So <laughs> I think there were probably more terrible spills there, certainly than in any other bar I've ever patronized. Uh, so I did that for a year. And uh, what else? Oh, I worked as an art model for uh, the Art Students League in New York. And I kind of ghost wrote this woman's blog who lived on the Upper East Side and heard that blogs were cool and wanted somebody, she wanted to have one, but she didn't want what I see as the reward of having a blog where you actually write, so she didn't want to do that, so I did that for her. And that was my first year, but in the course of it, I joined a group called the Accompanied Literary Society, which was fantastic. And one night I was out at a party they were hosting, and I was seated next to this editor who was complaining that he had to go interview Dominic Dunn the next morning. Uh, And he said that nobody knew who Dominic Dunn was anymore. He had to get up at like six o'clock in the morning to go do this. And Dominic Dunn was, still is, uh, one of my favorite writers. I loved his pieces about justice for Vanity Fair. I have all of his books. I really enjoyed people like us. I think, you know, it captures the 80s in New York about as well as Bonfire of the Vanities. So I asked this man, are you going to ask him about the rumor that Frank Sinatra paid a waiter to punch him in the face? And uh, this, uh, this poor editor who has now been like railroaded into a corner by me says, uh, no, probably not. And I said, okay, are, are you going to ask him about the other rumor that the Kennedy family placed a hit on him after a year in purgatory? And he said, no. And I launched into my third question and he said, look, do you, do you write? Do you like to write? Do you want to go do this? And <laughs> I said, yes, it would be the greatest honor of my life. Uh, And I did. I got to interview Dominic Dunn, and it was uh, a terrible interview. It's very, very bad. I talked to him about Entourage for almost the entire time. He really likes it. (laughs) And then out of the blue, if you listen to my notes, uh, I ask him if he thinks prostitution should be legalized. And... Even Dominic Dunn was like, I don't know where that came from, but sure, maybe, I don't know. Um, so it's it's a truly weird, sprawling interview, if, if you ever find it. It was the first piece I ever published in a newspaper. I woke up at like four o'clock in the morning to get the copy of The Post when it first came out. I wish I was still excited about that. And then unfortunately, Dominic Dunn died about a month later. So my interview, which again is an objectively terrible interview, is the last recorded interview with Dominic Dunn, which made people at The Post and some other publications think that I had like an inside scoop on the literary world. And uh, I started getting offers to write more places. I started writing pretty regularly for The Post. 
I got a little bit better, I hope. And then from there, Elizabeth Spires hired me to uh, be the deputy editor for a website she was starting, and everything just kind of went from there. So it was uh, complete luck. That's amazing, though. It's it's like one of those things where, you know, opportunity comes knocking, and you were able to, you know, really respond. Yeah. And you. What was it? What when was this that the post piece came out? Two thousand nine. With Dominic Dunn? I know because I have it framed and hanging on a wall somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and this, that was, I mean, like obviously online journalism had existed well before that, but you know that was a shifting point where you know more publishers and more uh, media companies were putting a lot more dollars into like the online realm. Oh yeah. So you know, like this Elizabeth Spires website, which was it? Uh, it was called the Gloss. And was this something where, like, you were brought on uh, to kind of, like, help form the message and the, the mission? I was. I was there at the beginning. And how, what, what, what's that experience like? Because I know a lot of our listeners have probably started, like, their own blogs and everything, but very few of them have probably done it with, like, an actual budget and a team and, and a goal-oriented mission. Um, we truly loved it at the beginning it got um i think i signed an nda but i hope i'm not overstepping if i say that it got bought by a bigger company and it became dramatically less fun but uh, yeah at the beginning it was amazing um i was working on it with uh, one of my best friends from college i eventually became the editor of the site she became my deputy editor we uh we decided that it should you know, be a women's fashion site that should make jokes about Mad Max almost every day. <laughs> so so it, it was really fun. It was great. And it also uh, led to me doing a column called Shelf Dolls that was about interesting historical women that people might not have known about. And one of the biggest surprises from the website was that that became our most popular feature. I didn't think that women would enjoy reading about historical figures that much. And it's really, really lucky that they did because it led to me doing my first book on um, breakups in history. And that that experience, did an agent, you know, was there an agent that was a fan of the column that then asked for you to... Uh... There were a few. Uh, there, there was one who I remember really liked it and I pitched her a book on interesting lessons we could learn from murderesses in history and she just wrote me an email back saying this is very dark I don't think this is appropriate <laughs> um. <laughs> if only she could have anticipated the true crime craze <laughs> yeah no um I still think that would have been a fun book it's but, hey it's not it's not uh, too no, late it's never too late but uh, yeah, that was not the agent for me, but yes, there were a few different agents who were interested, and my path towards ending up my with my current agent was kind of long and circuitous. I had an agent early in my career who uh, ghosted me, which oh. was really weird. Eventually, my next agent tracked her down and found out that she just quit the industry, got married, moved to Chicago, <laughs> had a child, um, was no longer a part of this world in any way, and I guess made a very clean break with it, where she just decided, I'm not even telling anyone, I'm just, I'm on the wind. 
I'm I've never heard of a professional ghost. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel bad that it, it like you know negatively affected your career, but also you know good for her. I I wish that yeah, I could make no, clean breaks sometimes. <laughs> uh, I do too. It was like an Irish exit, but from the entire publishing industry. <laughs> Man, a lot of people have that dream. Uh, so. <laughs> So, and what what was your experience like publishing your first book? Uh, writing it was wonderful. Writing it was amazing. Uh, right before it was published was terrible. Just, uh, just, uh, and I hope most writers have this experience because right when, okay, before your book comes out, uh, you'll get an email from your editor saying, okay, this is your last chance to make changes. And that's when you read through the whole manuscript again and you think, oh my God, I typed this drunk. Uh, I must have because (laughs) nothing could ever be this bad. Uh, I will be exiled from this industry if this comes out. I have to stop it. So I, I think there was like this terrible period where I was convinced that... I would get some fact wrong in the book where I just kept checking and rechecking everything because God forbid I like get the date of Norman Baylor's start of his campaign to run for mayor wrong. Uh, so that was a really stressed out period for me. My husband took me to Disneyland and it was great. It was a really <laughs> good time. I recommend, I recommend doing that. That was fantastic. But you know, that's it's a good de-stressor. Out. Yeah, the book came out, and it was really nice. It got written up places pretty nicely. It got some really nice reviews. People seemed to like it. I got some nice emails. I still get some nice emails from people that enjoyed the story about historical breakups, and maybe it put their breakups in perspective. So I, it did everything that a normal person could want a book to do. And there is still a part of me that wonders, why is this not the most popular book in America? And I can have those feelings simultaneously with having feelings where I can pick up and read a page of my own work and think, this is dog shit. I should be ashamed of this. Yeah, there's definitely a a little duality there. Yeah. People, People often say that writing a book and having it come out is like having a child. And I don't have children yet, but I really hope I don't have those feelings about them. It sounds like that's like Donald Trump's mother right there. I, I don't know what kind of parent Ooh. has those feelings. <laughs> what? This child is awful, but why are more people they talking be about it? <laughs> my, my biggest question for you is honestly, like, are you just the most curious person on the planet? Because you yeah, wrote, really you know. Am. You write. You wrote about breakups, about fashion, uh, an illustrated book about fashion. Uh, I you wrote write the about popular mechanics ones. Yeah. See, you got it all. It wasn't and, my strong suit, but yeah. What, what What was that article? Oh, it was about dynamically changeable buttons. The idea, and again, this so was kind of fashion related. Almost, yeah. The idea was <laughs> that uh, people really liked Blackberries because you could feel the keys. So iPhones were going to have a new system where you could pop up the buttons, and that never happened. I remember hearing about that. I remember seeing, maybe I read your article, I remember seeing something about how the face of the iPhone was going to be 
filled with buttons that were popping up and changeable. And I thought it was the coolest, but also most unnecessary thing ever. Completely unnecessary. I should have focused less on how cool I thought it was and more on how incredibly unnecessary and expensive that would have been. I I think the only thing more unnecessary is Ryan Seacrest's company where he created like the... um, adapter that would put a keyboard onto the iPhone. Oh, God. Uh, nobody needs that. <laughs> we, we all know where the buttons are. We touch our phones in our sleep now. <laughs> I mean, you've written about so many different subjects and with such authority. Like, I'm just curious. Like, what is your research process like? How do you come up with ideas? Um, well, uh, the Library of Congress does an amazing thing if you're someone who likes reading old newspapers about a subject, where they have uh, every newspaper, I know it's going back to the 1880s, it might go back farther than that, indexed online now. I think the site is called, hold on, it should be under my bookmarks, uh, Library of Congress Chronicling America. So if you're interested in anything that happened in American history, that is just an amazing resource that allows you not to leave your house. And it's, it's also, it's just, <laughs> it's just fun. Do you, like, do you, do you want to know how people felt about, like, pornography in 1908? Cool, you can, you can look that up immediately. And how how did they feel about it? Um, well, they actually felt uh, pretty okay with it. In the early days of silent films, there were a lot of these films that were like, a woman bathing in a river. Which, uh, yeah, that's what people want. Yeah, people just want to see Evelyn Nesbitt or Audrey Munson like get naked and bathe in a river. And uh, silent movies are actually really interesting to me too because they have a lot of stories about like women having unplanned pregnancies and women pursuing careers and uh, adulterers, so many adulterers, a lot of prostitution. Just, you would think that prostitution was a real constant from a lot of silent movies. Uh, And then, you know, under the Hayes Code, it changes dramatically. And that was really shocking to me because growing up, my parents uh, pretty understandably, I think, hated children's programming. So they just let me watch whatever was on TCM because under the Hays Code, everything is G-rated. It's not like, you know, mm-hmm. Fred Astaire is suddenly going to be like, fuck you, Ginger Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I grew up watching almost exclusively old movies, which uh, I, I think also made me hate Nazis a lot. I think that really... Uh, like watching Catherine, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy in Keeper of the Flame, a not very good movie that nobody watches, probably uh, cemented my fear of fascism in the U.S. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so the Hays Code was surprising to me. So when I got older and started watching silent movies and I realized that uh, characters actually would say the equivalent of fuck you to each other almost constantly, it was mind-blowing for me. I love it when there are periods like that where it seems like uh, society uh, willfully regresses. I write about history all the time. I don't understand why you would ever want to go backwards. It's uh, it's bad all the way down. There's It's only gotten better. Has the desire always been to write about history or was this something that you sort of discovered as you went? You know, that's a really good question. I don't think if you asked me when I was a child if it was what I wanted to write about, 
I would have said it was what I wanted to write about. I think, again, in some ways, it sort of came down to what I was good at. I started to realize that a lot of people were reading the thing that I wrote about history. It seemed to be what agents were expressing interest in. If a million people had wanted to read my writings on Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's research, I'm sure I would have written a book about that. So, but at, at the same time, at the I same love time, writing about history. It's great. I think there are also other things I could have written about that would have made me very happy. <laughs> Such as uh, Alzheimer's research. Um, <laughs> my, I told you about my uh, the piece that I will never get to write. My five thousand word defense of Hufflepuff in in Harry oh. Potter for the Atlantic. I was going to say, um, you're going to have to, th- th- this is a question that I, I had explicitly written down as summarize your feelings on why Hufflepuff is the best Hogwarts house and be prepared to defend your position. I'm very, very, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Okay. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I think if anybody thinks about the way that they go about their daily life, they realize that Hufflepuff is the only house they would want to be in. Because, okay, think about what all the houses do on, say, Friday night. Slytherin, they're having an orgy. And it's like a weird orgy where people are left out and somebody's <laughs> crying in the bathroom. And it's, it's not fun. It's, it's a sad orgy. Um, Ravenclaw... I, I don't know. Those guys are nerds. Like they probably have They're like doing a, lab experiments. They're doing lab experiments or like they're in the mathletes or something. They're learning how to code. Uh, good for them because those kids probably read at what like a 10-year-old level. So I'm glad if they're reading a book in, in Ravenclaw. But uh, that sounds boring. Gryffindor, fight club. Fight club all the way. Um, no question. Just beating each other up for fun and sport. <laughs> and they think it's normal. Hufflepuff? They're having a pizza party. And every Friday, they rent a movie that's bad. And they goof on it. Unless you don't want to, that's cool too. Like, people people can go to their own rooms. They're a house who are, is entirely defined by the idea of being accepting and being kind and being loyal. And the older I get, the more I feel like those are the virtues from which everything else should spring. And I'm sure there are people in the world we live in now who would be like, well, they weren't very accepting towards the Death Eaters, were they? Uh, No, they weren't, because Hufflepuff uh, lost the most students of anyone during the final battle. And you can say that's because they're not good at fighting. But I think that's because people who build their lives around kindness and loyalty will fight when they see a violation of those things until the bitter end. Uh, I think they have the hearts of champions. That's such a wholesome way to look at it. I uh, I totally disagree. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with everything that you said, but I mean, it just would be so much more exciting to be anywhere else, I think. Yeah, but anywhere else you can be an asshole. And I think there probably is something it's true about being an asshole. Like, I've known... Uh, but you, I mean, you could also be an asshole as a Hufflepuff. No, you can't. No, like, if your whole deal is <laughs> we're kind to people, that's the one thing you can't be. Uh, you can cultivate any other virtues that you want, and it... Look, Cedric Diggory. It seems like you could be pretty cool. Um, but if your core value is we are kind, then 
I think you, uh, you can't go too far wrong. I think uh, everything else, like you can be brave and that can just translate to recklessness if you're not invested in trying to create a better world and trying to be kind to people. You can be ambitious and that can be truly monstrous. You can be smart and just be like a pedantic asshole who corrects everybody's grammar. Uh, Hufflepuffs are the only ones who have the right values. They are the heroes we need now. <laughs> Is kindness before loyalty in the Hufflepuff uh, it's hierarchy? Acceptance. acceptance and loyalty. Acceptance yeah. and loyalty. Because there, there is a way to carry that to a fault, just like there is with the other virtues of the houses, I, mean, I, I would think, say. I think if you tried to carry that to a fault, if, like, one Hufflepuff went too far and was like, we should accept Death Eaters. We should, we should invite them over for, like, pizza parties, because they seem lonely. I think the other Hufflepuffs would invoke the paradox of tolerance pretty fast. I think they would... I was going to say, try it. Try try the modern situation we find ourselves in. We must accept everyone's opinion, no matter how nope, ridiculous. If their opinion and everything is worthy of debate. For the destruction of other people, you don't have to accept it. <laughs> nope, that will destroy your society. And I think, given the casualties during the final battle, people in Hufflepuff understand that. They are definitely Hufflepuffs. Definitely ready to get down and kick oh, some yeah, ass. Yeah. I will I think say that they hate what yeah. Voldemort stands for more in their hearts than anybody else does. I think you could have worse wars that Gryffindors would want to participate in, but I think the Hufflepuffs are uh, fundamentally righteous and realize when the world is becoming unjust. Listen, you're throwing around some some serious slander I mean, of Gryffindor look, here. Look, yes. I am, because I think they're dumb and reckless, and they like sports too much. <laughs> You're implying that they would participate in an unjust war, when in reality, the truth is quite the opposite. Kyle, but that's fine. I mean, Kyle, what house do you think lucky. you're in? <laughs> if, I mean, I feel like I would have been given the same choice uh, that Harry was given, uh-huh. just personally, and I probably would have picked Gryffindor. Just because, well, but, I'm but also th- this is the problem. This is the problem, though, is that everybody has these like weird like imaginations as to where they would be. Like, I would put you in Hufflepuff. What um, a great I think that's compliment! Fine. I, I'm what a quite, wonderful I'm thing I'm quite to flattered. Say. Yeah, but I also believe that everyone, when it comes right down to it, is probably given a choice by the Sorting Hat, and it tells you both where you where it thinks you belong and where you'd well, like to go. Yeah, and you everybody get to gets a choice in real life, too, right? Like, you get to figure out what yeah. values are most important to you. and It's what my favorite part of Harry yeah. Potter is. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> God, that's a good book. <laughs> Do people know that? <laughs> Do you think just they're going to take off? You know what? I really hope they get translated into, like, a hundred different languages so that everybody in the world over that gets to experience nice. them. Yeah. <laughs> Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Jen, I have a question for you regarding uh, 
Like what, what advice would you give to our listeners if they, you know, maybe are writing about computers or something for their entire career and then decide one day that they want to write about Harry Potter? Oh, uh, you can do that. Uh, are you on, are you on Twitter? I mean, I, I just, like practically speaking though, like if, if they're so used to already having, uh, like this one voice and this one structure and they want to change that. Oh, I, you know, do you just think that they should just like throw it all to the wind and, and just try yeah, something course, new? Yeah. I, you don't have to give up writing about computers. You can do all the things. I think we live in a world where it's good to know a lot. And also, um, okay. Uh, one of my favorite books is this dystopia called station 11. Have either of you read it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, my it was God, amazing. It's so good, right? Oh, yeah. I love that book. Okay, one of my favorite scenes in it is when a character who uh, was a child when the apocalypse happens is asking everybody to explain string theory to her. And one guy's best response is like, I don't know. I think it was a real thing. And like the universe folded in on itself. And she's so upset by that because she's heard about the internet. And she knows that those people had a quite bewildering amount of time to look up anything they wanted. And I, I, I do think it's so easy now. I don't have to leave my house to read newspapers that were written a hundred years ago. Uh, and it's free. Knowledge is so incredibly accessible that I, I, I think we would be losing out on one of the best parts of modern times if we weren't taking advantage of that. This is why the sorting quizzes keeps grouping me into Ravenclaw unless, unless I cheat. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I don't think that's cheating. But so that does bring up the question of why, why haven't you written this piece yet? Oh, I don't think... <laughs> I, I can't imagine a publication in the world that wants a really, really long, I assume very intellectual explanation where I'm like quoting Zweig about what to do when fascism rises and how the puffs exemplify that. Um, to, to be to be fair, I, I worked with an author once who posted a 5,000 word essay in Ars Technica about uh, what it meant for her like coming out as a Slytherin. Wow, really? Oh, I can't wait to read that. Oh, uh, was she was she a nice person? <laughs> yeah, oh, she was great. Oh, it was uh, nice. It's great. Good for her. <laughs> if if anybody wants to read it, it's uh, her name is Cecilia Tan. Uh, I'm gonna read it as soon as this interview is over. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. Does Ars Technica want a second one? Maybe maybe after <laughs> well, this podcast, like- somebody will be into it. <laughs> In all seriousness, I can't imagine a more relevant parallel for the things that are going on politically today as America re-enters a dance with fascism. Like what the the subject matter has sadly never been more relevant to us than it is right now. Very true. And I often do feel that we were very lucky to grow up with Harry Potter and to just have this nice wizard kid who liked books and hated fascism. So, yeah, you know what? 
I should read that piece. I don't know who would want it. It also, it, it seems it seems a little flip to pitch a piece on, on, <laughs> on my favorite house in a children's book when we're re-entering that dance. I think people might think um, I was honestly. joking if I was like, this is, this is what America needs now. Please pay me a dollar a word. So personally, yeah, personally, I'm ready okay. for it. I would be the first right. one to read it. I also read the the coming out as a Slytherin thing, uh, but I, ju- I I do think it would resonate particularly with our generation that also graduated in two thousand eight and found a job market uh, very much not waiting for educated young people to yeah to jump in. yeah. It is it is amazing how much the conversation is being dominated by younger people now and how much technology has made that possible. God, what what a truly the best of times and also quite literally the worst of times. <laughs> so I did. I, this brings me to another question that I had about your work because it there is a pivot that we see in your journalism from sort of fashion to politics, and in terms of your the subject matter of your books, it's very dark. And I say this just having finished uh, Get Well Soon, which is a book that terrified me probably more than any single piece of media oh, I've consumed. Yeah. The ice caps are melting. We're going to have Spanish flu come out again. Yeah, Spanish flu. Yeah, I did yeah. not know what it, I, I just didn't know. So can you talk yeah. to like, why, the subject matter is very dark. Uh, the subject matter is very dark. And it's it's all about diseases. So I think it would be surprising if it was like a really peppy book about diseases and uh, look i am a very very anxious person um i uh i i remember i once had an ex-boyfriend angrily yell at me you're scared of everything and i said <laughs> no like two-thirds of the things <laughs> so uh, so yeah i'm afraid of two-thirds of the things one of the things that i am very afraid of is an outbreak of another plague i remember when uh, i came up with the idea for the book when ebola was breaking out and it was one of those things where I don't know if you or any people listening share my tendency, but sometimes when something happens that you're a little bit worried about, you kind of fall into this hole where it's all you can read about and you're up until four o'clock in the morning reading news reports from Africa about the Ebola virus. And so I kind of couldn't turn my brain off in terms of thinking about that and worrying about that. And uh, my first reaction was to figure out how I could flee New York uh, and, <laughs> and get to a position of relative safety. So once, once I made my little map in that regard, I had to find something else to do. And I started to get really interested in how people had survived diseases before and what were tactics that had historically been effective because okay we know that a lot of people died from the bubonic plague but not everybody died from the bubonic plague so were the people who didn't dying from it doing something right were the communities that had less casualties from the spanish flu doing something better than the communities that had more casualties from them and i don't mean that on an individual level because i think people often think that diseases affect sinners or people who they don't like for some reason. And that's terrible logic. That's never been the case. 
So I wasn't looking at it from a perspective of like, how can I live a righteous and clean life so God will keep me alive? But I, I did want to look at it from a perspective of like, okay, with New York being as it is, what could people do that would work? What could we do immediately to minimize casualties if we did have an outbreak of plague here? And the book really revolves around that fear. And I thought it would get better over time. I thought we would see like a very clear line of things improving as technology and resources and abilities to communicate improve. And man, that is just not the case. What I really found out from it is the worst thing you can do is either uh, try to ignore the disease for as long as possible and not talk about it at all, which is what they did during the Spanish flu to keep morale up during the war. Or you can try to demonize anyone who's afflicted with the disease, which is why everybody had syphilis. Just, and condoms were around! You could have been wearing a condom and not spreading syphilis. It was so easy. But of course, nobody could talk about it because uh, newspapers couldn't even print the word. I can't remember which one. But I remember some newspaper that immediately lost 75,000 subscribers because they printed the word syphilis and it was the first time it appeared in print. And I mean, that was very far back, but... It was, it was only about 100 years ago, so, uh, so yeah, so, so I don't know. I don't know if we would overcome those tendencies here. Meanwhile, in societies where people acknowledge the problem, face it head on, treat the afflicted with kindness, you see not just a very quick cure to the disease, as was the case once people really started banding together to fight polio, but also something really beautiful in society. I, uh, I love the story of Jonas Salk and polio so much. Uh, they're, they're gonna, okay, so he chose not to patent the polio cure, and they're gonna be people who uh, will tell you like, oh, because of the legal thing that I found on the internet, he actually couldn't have. And like, fuck you, Ravenclaw. He definitely could have. People were super desperate <laughs> for that polio. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the things that I really love about it is, first of all, that by not patenting it, he would have made literally, I think, like a billion dollars on it. And he chose not to because he felt that so many Americans had been involved in the fight that the cure belonged to each and every one of them, which I think is beautiful. And also the fact that people responded to him not doing that by, like, sending him cars. Uh, at some point, like, the government asked, I think, oh, God, I can't, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Eisenhower. He asked how, how people thought we should repay Jonas Salk. And there are all these letters that just say, money, you should give him lots of money. You should give him a bag of a million dollars. And I think that's one of the rare times that people want to see money go directly to an individual who is not themselves. And it's just this one really tiny period, but a really nice period in American history. And, uh, and then it's over. And then, uh, then we just fucked up on AIDS. We just did a, did a shit job on that. So, uh, and if a disease breaks out now, you need really good leadership. You need leadership that can uh, both soothe people's fears while informing them about what to do and also instilling confidence that they'll get through this. And I don't believe Donald Trump can do that. 
So uh, I think, yeah. <laughs> no. 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 Don't. Uh, Don't. Can, you don't think you can do that? You don't think you can handle that challenge? Oh, you don't boy. think you can step up to the plate? Kills me about Donald Trump, uh, like among the many, many other things, he could be curing Alzheimer's. His dad died from Alzheimer's. Like, I, I got a speech yes. from him in my head about how, even if he doesn't like his dad, he can talk about how, like, he was estranged from his dad <laughs> and he wanted to rub his face in his accomplishments. So he went back to see his dad, but, oh, his dad didn't know who he was because he had Alzheimer's and the disease had progressed too far. Like, there are so many easy ways we can spin wanting to have a cure for Alzheimer's when a parent died from it. Also, that's a situation that happens on House, uh, a cool TV show. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, that is very that seems yeah. very much on brand for uh, you. I have I like to say, it a House. Lot. But yeah. also, I think House I love is House. mean. I don't think he has to be. Why does he have to be so mean? Oh, he's why an asshole. Gotta be that way. <laughs> because he's a broken human being. He knows no way to absolve himself of the pain that he feels in his heart. And so he inflicts yeah. it on other people. Yeah. Well, that's a metaphor. I feel like the, the heart, the, the, the leg is a physical manifestation well, of his metaphorical know, heart pain. Where I think that if this lead character was a woman, you would just be fired on your first day. Like, you would be very sternly reprimanded about oh, how, like, you made Mrs. Williams cry. You told her she was barren like a salt field. Obviously, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> that's i wonder if she would have to uh, it's just like would they be able to get rid of her because everyone hates house but they just can't get rid of him so would she be would she so. find herself similarly think... indispensable what's the magnitude it, of disease she would have big. to solve i i feel like yeah i still feel like less leeway is given to women to be assholes like uh, I don't know. I read about all these authors who are terrible, but I mean, like, Norman Mailer stabbed his wife in the heart. Uh, William S. Burroughs shot his wife in the Jesus. head playing William Tell. We gave guys, like, a lot of leeway for being, I don't know, I guess the Executioner's Song's a good book. It's fine. Like, Wait, it's Nor okay. Norman Mailer Norman Mailer stabbed his wife? I didn't even oh, yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was when he was... This is a chapter in my first book. Uh, it ended badly. 13 of the worst breakups in history. Buy it now. So he was at a party <laughs> announcing his run for mayor, where uh, midway through the evening, supposedly, his wife told him he was no Dostoevsky, and he responded by grabbing a penknife and stabbing her in the heart uh, when she fell down and the guests were rushing her Jesus. to the hospital he said to leave her there to die uh and the next morning he went on a talk show to advocate citywide just to relieve young men's angry impulses so if you wonder who would be defending wow. incels right now it's norman mailer <laughs> he writing a really long piece in the new york times it's about norman how mailer. their feelings were very normal uh, yeah, and uh, he talked his wife out of pressing charges for the sake of the children, and then he complained about how it lost him a little bit of a claim later in life. Didn't stop him from making a great living, publishing books, being featured on the Gilmore Girls, generally just being a, a great man of letters, but you know it was a bummer for him. 
Jesus. I, I had no idea. Yeah, I chose to write about him rather than William S. Burroughs because William S. Burroughs was really sad about it. Like, yeah, I, thought, I, I knew I knew about yeah, that one. I thought he got some points yeah. for being sad and like feeling bad that he <laughs> killed his wife. <laughs> now, Jen, is typically the point in the show where we pivot to the, the story that the author that we have on has struggled to tell. And I know there were two more in the email that you shared, and I thought we'd let you sort of choose which one you thought was more appropriate. Oh, sure. Um, one that is always on my back burner, but that I'm really interested in, is uh, a biography that I kind of just work on as a hobby at this point about Madame Ristel. She was an abortionist in the New York in the 1850s, where there was estimated to be one abortion for every four live births, wow. which is um, a staggering number if you compare it to today. And it's such an interesting period in history because there were also so many orphans in New York that they were being shipped away on orphan trains to the Midwest. And the idea was that these kids would go to the Midwest and they'd be like, sturdy farmhands, and it would be like Anne of Green Gables. Uh, surprise, that was not the case because uh, children in New York started drinking at a really early age. They would be paid in beer in a lot of places. So these trains would get to the Midwest and a bunch of drunk children would stumble out ready to fight. Um, which is which is terrible. That's, that's a terrible, terrible problem. But understandably, a lot of women who became pregnant before a period of really reliable birth control were not eager to create a, another drunk homeless orphan roaming the streets of New York. And so Madame Restel started this shop where she performed abortions. Supposedly, she never killed a single patient, which is kind of amazing. If you read court transcripts, she's very, very tender with her patients. Uh, like, she makes sure that they don't see anything that's happening. Uh, she keeps them there afterwards. She sleeps in their room if they seem to be having troubles. Uh, she seems like she must have been a very good surgeon. And uh, uh, she made millions of dollars. Uh, she became one of the richest women in New York. And uh, that, I think, as much as the procedure she was performing is what really upset people. That it was an age where we were no longer living in farming communities. Women started moving to the city with the intention of living as independent women, which, I mean, really, like we don't think about that really happening until the 1920s. But uh, women living independently was a big new step for society, or, or at least women who weren't prostitutes living independently. So uh, um, the suffragette, the first suffragette convention happened at Seneca Falls in 1848. So Madame Restel is really a part of this movement where women are beginning to have more autonomy and being allowed to make more choices about the lives that they want to have. And they don't just have to have nine children so their husband can keep the farm going anymore. And I think that inspired a tremendous amount of fury that was entirely directed towards Madame Rostel. And watching the people who went after her 
are also really fascinating in their own right uh, because it's uh, Anthony Comstock who's responsible for the Comstock laws who finally managed to arrest her um, and the Comstock laws would forbid not just the sale of birth control but even mentioning how to do an abortion in a letter or mentioning birth control. Uh, Margaret Sanger said that he was responsible for the deaths of untold number of women. And it was, he entrapped her in the end. He pretended to be a husband whose uh, wife couldn't handle another pregnancy, and he was coming to Madame Rostel, even though by that point uh, abortion had been made illegal. It was made illegal during Madame Rostel's lifetime. And uh, he was like, oh, God, my poor wife, Madame Rostel was like, don't worry, don't worry, we got you. I'll, I'll take care of it. And then he's like, oh, I'm Anthony Comstock, here to destroy you. Uh, people didn't actually like that that much. People people got mad at him. They thought entrapment was wrong. So that's that's a small win for society, if not women, for a lot of time. But also, the first guy who hated her was a newspaper editor who used to be a blackface performer. And <laughs> I really want to work in quotes about how much all of New York hated this guy. Because they really hated him more than they hated Madame Restel, maybe. But all of the quotes about him are so racist that I can't find any that make people look good for, I think, rightly being opposed to the newspaper editor that wanted to see Madame Restel in jail. So I think she's a fascinating character and a real lightning rod for a lot of controversy that are still things that we are uh, having a hard time dealing with today. And uh, I, uh, I think she's good. I'm pro Madame Restel. I think what she was doing was good. I think she's got uh, buckets of letters from women who she performed abortion on that thank her for saving their lives, that call her an angel, that say that, you know, she's the reason that they're a successful actress now. Um, so, you know, I think the same kind of thing that you would probably see if you were someone who performed abortions today. Um, and uh, we're living, you know, in a time where that's not necessarily a right that's going to be around in two years. <laughs> and so why is this a story that you've struggled to tell? Um, well, partly it's because Madame Restel herself didn't keep any letters. So a lot of what I and what anybody trying to write about her has to go on are reports from the press. And as I pointed out, a lot of the press, this is like the age of yellow journalism, where uh, I saw this uh, interesting Mike Daisy talk where he talked about how you, if you lived in this age, you had to th read like three different newspapers to kind of approximate what was going on. Like if there was a riot down on Chambers Street, one newspaper is going to say, it's 400 Irishmen. Uh, and the other newspaper is going to say, these were mostly communists. I hate them. They're all Bolsheviks from Russia. And the other one will say, okay, it was 200 people, um, but they were all saying that they're abolitionists. And I, I don't know, maybe, what, what do we do? Do we say, like, it's maybe, like, half of all of those things? It's, uh, it's hard to read a lot of these reports and know how much to believe. Like, you also get books from the religious right that talk about how, like, they have personally seen her become a devil. So it's... <laughs> well, that, it's nobody, nobody could make that up. It has to be real. No, you, he saw it with his eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's difficult to figure out what. And also, she's a woman who works under like four different names. 
she was an immigrant from England. She's definitely lying about being French because people thought French people were cool at that point. Unless she has some reason for adopting a French name that I just don't know which might be the case. So uh, there are a lot of holes in that story. And uh, we're forced to work with some records that are, I think at the least, very hyperbolic. Like, uh, all, people were so mad at Irish people. God, they just hated them. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's hard to figure out what are the parts that are true parts of her story and would be worth it. I mean, you can't just include it all. Like, that's fine. You can just publish the three reports from the newspaper. But then, like, Fox News says, did you know Irishmen were always bad? Here's an account that says 400 of them rioted. So... <laughs> Uh, she sounds she sounds kind of like a lady house. Uh, I, I gotta I, tell you. She's really nice. Yeah, I, like, I don't know. She makes them all soup and, like, gives some money to go home and gives them a talk about safe sex. I, I just feel like House wouldn't do that, you know. But would House buy the land out from under an archbishop <gasps> yes, who criticized him? That was my fa- that's one of my favorite parts <laughs> of Madame Rustel's story. Uh, the church doesn't really start cracking down on abortion until Madame Rustel buys the land away from the bishop. Like, for most of American history, the church is kind of waffling on abortion. Like, they're like, oh, the poor women who do this. But, you know, it hasn't quickened yet. So, you know, if it's before three months, fine, whatever. Uh, And then Madame Restell heard a bishop talk about how she was a very wicked woman. And uh, his reason for that, as much as anything, was because she was a female doctor. It wasn't like, I hate this abortionist. It was like, I hate these fucking women doctors. (laughs) They are usurping God's law. Men are doctors. Men with their big hands. Uh, so, uh, so Madame Restell responded to that by hearing that he was buying a plot of land at, on Fifth Avenue that he was going to build a house on for the church and just buying it right out from under him and building a mansion and performing abortions there. And there is a book by an archbishop that comes out like 20 years later that is supposedly about the evils of abortion, but I gotta be honest, like at least 30 pages are just about how tacky Madame Russell's house is. <laughs> like how it's marble and that's that's tacky. He hates that. There's statue her horses are gross. She has this fancy carriage. It's disgusting. It would make you sick. <laughs> Um, and it, I don't know, it probably was. Like, I'm sure she built a very over-the-top house. But it, I think they were as bothered by Madame Restell's house as they were by uh, the sin of abortion, which is never mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Uh, I gotta tell you, sounds like the sort of thing a lady house would do. It, it does. It like, does. there must be more tales of wickedness. There are. Uh, there are a lot, but it's hard to know which are true and which are uh, made-up reports from the newspaper. And that's, that's a struggle. And... That sounds... That, oh, uh, yeah, sorry. No. I was going to say, that sounds like an instance where I would read all the yeah, reports. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a hard story to tell. It would also be the first biography I've ever done that's on one person, and that's challenging to me because... Uh, if I tell her story, I want to do good by this lady. She seems like the kind of person who would haunt people as a ghost, (laughs) so I don't don't want that to happen. 
Uh, Jen, I want to take the time to thank you for coming on the show to talk to us today. Uh, where can our listeners find more of your work online? Oh, uh, I write a weekly column about women's issues for Harper's Bazaar, so you can Google my name in Harper's. Um, if you are foolish enough to be on Twitter, because it is a nightmare swamp most of the time, um, <laughs> just just get those death threats. Uh, it's Jen Ashley Wright. And you can also buy my books. They are It Ended Badly, 13 of the Worst Breakups in History, and Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues, and The Heroes That Fought Them. And also a small illustrated book called Killer Fashion, about uh, fashion accessories that killed people. Thank you so much, Jen. <laughs> Thank you. This was great. Thank, thanks a lot, Jen. Really appreciate your time. This has been a production of Writers Who Don't Write, part of the Podglomerate Network. You can find this show and all of the others at thepodglomerate.com. Check it out. Uh, shoot us a tweet at the Podglomerate or at www.podcast. We also are on Instagram and Facebook. If you send us some messages, we will surely respond. Again, let us know if you enjoyed the diatribe on Hufflepuff. We will be back in two weeks with uh, another amazing writer that you may or may not have heard of. I uh, can't really spoil it for you here. But the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. The music that you heard in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound. Uh, we want to thank Jen for coming on the show. You can pick up her books wherever books are sold. I recommend Get Well Soon. You can also find her on facebook instagram twitter just google jennifer Wright, and you'll be able to find all of her properties i think she would appreciate hearing from you and let her know what you thought of the interview thank you again and we will see you in two weeks Podglomerate, a sonic universe.